Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. And this is Abby Martin. We're back. We're back, baby. We're back, baby. <laughs> and man, what a, that was a fucking amazing uh, impeachment trial. Second impeachment trial we just watched. Um, fifth day. Beautiful job by the Democrats. They slayed Trump. <laughs> Never seen anything like it. And uh, yeah, Trump got acquitted again in his second impeachment trial. So what, do you, what do you have stuff. to say about that, Abby? Completely riveting stuff uh, on the edge of my seat the whole time. It was just so theatrical and so predictable. I mean, I I actually knew that only seven Republicans were going to vote to impeach him uh, before it even happened. So. Yeah. Turned out exactly like I thought it was going to. Mitch McConnell gave this sad sack speech, almost like admitting that to a certain extent he felt like Trump was guilty, but like, you know, he's a private citizen now and it's not Mm -hmm. up to the Senate to do this stuff. And it was just like, what a weird um, bow on this whole thing, like wrapping up this bizarre moment in American history with, of course, no accountability, you know. I mean, we knew that this was going to happen, and I think it's just only going to help Trump. I'm expecting him to do, like, a press conference and just talking about how he is vindicated. He's vindicated, and he was found innocent, right, of these charges. And that's what's going to happen. Because I think what should have happened was that he should have been arrested for sedition because um, the evidence is all there for that, right? But when it comes to what the Democrats were trying to do and the impeachment managers were trying to do, they were trying to prove like incitement. And that predictably, his defense attorney used the um, Supreme Court case about that Nazi as the bar. Um, It's a pretty high bar to prove incitement to violence, the Brandenburg v. Ohio case. And, you know, I mean, unless you're literally like explicitly saying that you want people to go commit violence, it's kind of protected speech in this case. And that's exactly what Trump's attorneys did. I thought it was really funny, though, how his defense attorney brought up like the only reason these people did what they did is because the Democrats allowed them allowed Black Lives Matter to riot (laughs) around the country for the last six months. And it was just like, hmm, I wonder why these people, where these people got the idea to desecrate these sacred institutions and, and monuments and symbols of our Republic, you know, like just like basically just blaming it all on the Democrats. It was pretty funny. Some of the dumbest stuff from the impeachment trial that I watched was the video clips that they were showing. I don't know who edited those. I don't know who produced those, but I didn't think they were particularly well done. They were too truncated. They were too spliced up. If they were trying to, for effect, edit Trump's like words to make them sound more extreme in between showing clips, I still just even think from like a dramatic documentary filmmaking point of view, they really dropped the ball. Like whoever they had, whoever they had making those presentations, I just thought they were poorly done. That what they should have done is just had a very specific chronology. Like showing clips and establishing the timeline of how Mike Pence was potentially in danger and Trump was still like tweeting shit talking about him like while he was like hiding in the Capitol building. That to me was the the biggest thing they probably should have emphasized, but even still, Abby, I mean, even if it was that obvious to us and other people there that Trump was putting his own vice president in that kind of potential danger, what does it really even matter in the end if the Republicans aren't going to do anything about it. And then if Pence himself doesn't say anything about it, like if Pence, 
is just going to lie down and not say anything about this, then it really just doesn't fucking matter. Because Trump was right that Pence will go down in history for being a pussy, but mostly because he just let the president literally almost kill him and didn't didn't care, didn't say anything about it. Yeah, it was I a, mean, a huge waste of time, man. And and also, I mean, this idea that did you see the witnesses that the Democrats were going to call? They had like thirty witnesses. They were ready to call. No, no. I only watched like today and another day. Okay, well, today was the, I mean, not just because they've decided today on the verdict, but it was the most pivotal day because the Democrats like completely flipped the script and said that they were ready to like drag this out for more days, call something like 30 witnesses. And then suddenly after some weird equivocation by Trump's legal team, they're like, okay, fine, we're not going to call any witnesses. Let's just vote. And And then like, on Twitter, even I even saw like generic, totally generic Democrats flipping out against what was happening. They were like, "What the fuck? Like, how could the Democrats cave like this?" They were everybody was like really confused, like the most you know the most mainstream blue checkmark people you've ever seen. So that was a very sort of unusual thing. Why did they just concede all of a sudden? The only thing I can come up with is that dragging this out any further. It's not going to, you know, their their official line was it's going to distract away from Biden's COVID agenda or something. But what's the missing piece here, Abby, that we haven't heard about during this impeachment trial? It's the thing that we were talking about on day one. Yeah, the inside job theory. Yeah. That no one brought up any evidence no. whatsoever because it would point to complicity with the highest levels of, of government, including Trump himself. Trump's uh, hand-picked appointees in the Pentagon. Yes, all across Probably the Capitol Police. Uh, yes, the and, and the Pelosi? Congress, the Congress people who allegedly were like with the Oath Keepers at these fundraising events before the Capitol attack. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were, um, you know, on the front lines there, and they're linked directly to Trump's people and members of Congress. So my question is, where was the evidence pointing to the thing that we all knew happened? that we can point to ourselves. It's like yeah. very clearly laid out. Um, I don't understand why that was omitted, especially from like people whose lives were directly threatened and in danger and who know very well what really happened that day. And what you're saying makes sense from Trump's side to keep silent about of that. Of course. But then the question, the question you have to ask is why are the Democrats so silent about it? AOC, you know, that Instagram live thing she did generated all this like negative press for her because people were like, oh, you weren't even in the actual Capitol building. You were just on the on the campus or whatever. And then it just created this whole distractionary sort of narrative. But in reality, why are the Democrats not being really vocal about this specifically during the impeachment trial? Why not? Why wouldn't they be talking about this? And I can't answer that. I'm not going to say that Nancy Pelosi told them to stand down i have no fucking idea but it's very eerie to me because that to me is the big standout from what happened yeah and it's like as much as you want to talk shit or people want to talk shit about aoc's instagram live video um to me she was at least calling attention to the seriousness of the fact that there was a right wing like mob that potentially wanted to harm her and the police were like collaborating with them and that was really scary And the fact that she was hiding, I don't know if it was like uh, Porter's office or whatever. They were in a building that people had also breached because Nancy Pelosi's office was in that other compound on the Capitol grounds. To me, it was good that she was trying to uh, create attention to 
drag this out in the sense that this was a big deal because it seemed like everyone was kind of trying to downplay it and be like, oh, this was nothing. Um, very fascinating. You know, and it's like, dude, this is so weird. It was a big deal. And it's way crazier than that because we know that police were involved and members of Congress were involved. That's why I just think it's such a distraction because like, I, like I've said repeatedly, I'm not a fan of AOC, but I could see that the left was using it as a way to just like not engage with this discussion that we're having now. Like there's only a few people on the left that I still see talking about how this was some kind of inside job or I saw Sam Husseini continually bringing up this Capitol Police stand down. This issue is going to sort of slip through the cracks and it's it's important because obviously something happened and we need to figure it out and I don't know why the Democrats would be hush-hush or trying to cover this up, but I think at this point they clearly are. I don't know what the leadership told people. I wouldn't even be surprised if there was some kind of memo sort of directing them to just only make certain talking points and not talk about certain things. I have no clue. Do you think it's almost like a 9-11, you know, on such a, (laughs) comparing it to 9-11, because who just did that? Who who compared it to 9-11? And they were like, actually, this is worse than 9-11 because it was Americans or something. It was like someone, (laughs) some some douchebag, like a pundit. But anyway, my point is that on such a small scale, the whole letting it happen thing, like 9-11, maybe there's this kind of understanding um, in terms of like a, a consensus within the political establishment that like they don't want to blow this up to discredit the legitimacy of the whole government or whatever. I mean, could that be it? Which just seems so bizarre. If that, well, that, that would almost sort of be akin to like we had to whitewash 9-11 because the agencies didn't get along with each other and it like looks bad optically if we like... No, 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 but like even fully... more nefariously than that, like they knew the agencies stood down to a certain extent, but they're like, we can't yeah. let this get out because it would like completely destroy the credibility of our country. Well, that's a very interesting premise you bring up because I've, you know, my working theory at this point, I mean, just not, I'm going to mention this really quickly. I'm not going to explain it. People can listen to other things I've done explain this, but let's just say in theory, what if someone inside US Intel or inside US law enforcement leaked those DNC emails and Podesta emails? And what if they did that? Then it kind of makes sense why we'll never hear about that actually happening. I mean, if if that were the case, they'll never be able to admit that that happened because it would just completely undermine the credibility of like the US right. government. Right. That there's like an internal war. So I think what you're saying could be true. But, you know, it just sucks that we're not going to know. Like, we need, you know, who, what I want to know is, is there an internal investigations unit, like, Mm -hmm. with the fucking Capitol Police, and who control? I mean, I haven't heard anything on that front whatsoever. And also, like, the Ayanna Presley ripping the panic buttons out of her office, there was, like, some serious allegations thrown around that seem like they've just completely gone by the wayside. Like, what happened? You know, we're just going to pick up the pieces and move forward without really confronting this giant inside job. And it's opening the door for more sort of QAnon style conspiracizing. I mean, I just saw something that actually Greenwald posted the other day from a weird right wing website called Revolver that was saying that what happened to this Capitol Police guy, because now they're saying the cause of death wasn't a fire extinguisher to the head. But the article is almost like insinuating that the family like let like cremated his body to cover up his death or something. It just, it just went into these really odd places. And I'm thinking, 
Okay, we know this guy died. I mean, are, so are you saying he didn't die? That they just like added another death to this event crisis to just actor. inflate it? Because we saw someone die on video. People did, someone did get trampled. We all saw what happened. Yeah, right. So yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, there's, there's probably shit that the media will talk about that's going to be exaggerated and that will be factually incorrect and it might be retracted. But that doesn't like negate what we saw with our own well, eyes. Also, the police witnessed. are the ones who said that that happened, and we also yeah, exactly. saw video footage of of a cop getting like beat with sticks and stuff. Yeah, but Abby, it did it happen. Any time, you know, you could find a retraction in a story or change in the story, then that means it's not dangerous. It's Anytime so. AOC whines on Instagram, that means it's not wasn't serious. Let's move on. Don't do the domestic terrorism thing. It's like that's the. It, you can do both. You can right. say, yeah, there's, we don't need more domestic terrorism legislation. Of course not. 9-11, post 9-11 was a horrifying landscape. We're still living in this crazy dystopian reality. So yeah, we don't need more domestic terrorism legislation, but we saw that shit. That shit was crazy. But also, is anyone even addressing the domestic <laughs> ter- terrorism legislation? Because it seemed like there was this whole wave of reactionary um, articles and, and takes and stuff being like, this should not be overhyped. It should almost be downplayed because we don't want it to be used to pass a new Patriot Act. And it's like, I mm-hmm. actually am not hearing anyone taking it even seriously enough to like address what we're talking about now, like let alone passing new laws. That's what's so odd. I mean, I just really feel like this debate is being really controlled by some political actors who don't want us to be talking about this. I mean, even the conspiracy people aren't talking about what we're talking no, about. No, 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 no. They're just trying to make it seem like Ashley Babbitt was fake. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had people attack me and they're just like, like you're dude. just going with like the MSM narrative. And it's like, no one on the MSM is talking about this shit. Yeah, they only talked about it as a gut reaction right. while it was happening. Right. While it was happening. You can find gut reactions from all these different people while it was happening. They were like, where are the police? Yeah. That's right. that's the question. Yeah. And to segue into the larger conversation about Biden, which is going to be the crux of this podcast, Blinken, his new secretary of state that is, you know, taking over from Mike Pompeo's job. He's perhaps the most important foreign policy pick that's going to be driving foreign policy. But he addressed this whole capital attack to Andrea Mitchell in one of his first sit-down interviews. And and all he did to talk about it was essentially talk about how it hurt our standing in the world. But he says, you know, this attack on our democracy creates a very big challenge for us to be carrying the banner of democracy and freedom and human rights around the world. Because people in other countries are saying to us, well, why don't you look at yourselves first? And he says, when we're challenged, We're doing it in full daylight with full transparency. We're grappling with our problems in front of the entire world. And the fact of the matter is that it sends a powerful message to countries that are trying to sweep everything under the rug. We don't do that. We take these problems on head on. So very interesting language here. It's like not only is he obviously lying because he's totally contradicting what we're talking about, which is that they haven't grappled with this at all and haven't been transparent about what actually happened but it's almost like the the part that really irks them is the fact that we appeared weak um you know one of our most sacred institutions the most heavily protected allegedly building in the entire country was attacked by thousands of trump supporters with no security and no like um police apparatus to repel them so very, very interesting. It seems like Blinken only cares about how much that hurt other people looking at us. And it's going to like impede the spreading of human rights. 
you know, the way that these think tank people and these national security people present it in these mythic terms is that America's role is supposed to lean into maintaining this sort of hegemonic role, its responsibilities across the world, you know, to maintain global order. That's sort of their way of spinning it. But throughout the Obama administration, by the end of the Obama administration, it sort of moved because of all the quote-unquote cyber attacking that Russia was doing to us, supposedly, and all this other stuff, we sort of got into the position of almost acting like we were a victim, that we were almost like pathetically under-equipped to deal with all this new, all these new threats. And then because of that now, we needed to like reassert our dominance. So I feel like what Blinken is sort of talking about is it's become this useful myth. It's almost like this woe is me America myth. Oh my God, because Trump did all this damage, because of the Capitol riots, you know, making us look so bad across the world, now we need to sort of reassert ourselves again in some way or gain our credibility back. But along with that comes sort of this idea of reasserting our dominance. Of we course. need to step in there and kick butt again and show people we mean business and we're serious. You could see Trump as playing this useful role of really sort of besmirching the American character. It, it, it gives everybody a reason to want to be like America is back. They really do believe America, that Trump took away you know, that responsibility somehow. And that was the name of Biden's first big yep. foreign policy speech was America is back. And it was segueing from America first. Trump's entire foreign policy lens was this allegedly, which isn't really true, this isolationism that impeded America's role in the world to confront the big threats, China and Russia, and really move forward with the spreading of human rights and democracy, Robbie. Um, and that's exactly what you're talking about. And that's exactly what Blinken and Biden's approach is, is building these international coalitions with essentially the junior collaborators of the empire, you know, the NATO partners, this imperial alliance to pressure and isolate China and Russia, essentially. I mean, Biden really has called Russia the greatest threat facing the country. He calls China like the great competitor, but he he's blatantly pivoted toward a very hostile approach with Russia, which we can talk about. So yeah, that is exactly what we're going to see happen here. And we're already seeing an increase in military exercises near Taiwan, um, in, near the South China Sea by U.S. forces. I mean, which was also happening when Trump, you know, at the end of his administration, but it's that continuity we're seeing. You know, everyone from the right thinks that China owns Biden, that somehow he's a China puppet. You know, just like the libs think that Trump was a Russia puppet. Neither were true. Um, the American empire and American administration still have amazing amounts of power. This is another variant of the narrative I was just talking about that Blinken was almost playing on. That it's mm -hmm. almost like by taking the agency away from both presidents and their administrations, like they're just puppeted by a different foreign government, we again are in sort of this world of not imagining America as this all-powerful empire that has really dominated the world for since World War II. I mean, and even before that, but in a very big way since World War II. So there is extreme continuity in U.S. foreign policy, regardless of who's president. Uh, and this is something that even Robert Kagan likes to talk about. And one of the prime examples since Bush is the war on terror. There's been continuity be even before that, but with a few small tweaks here and there, the war on terror has continued almost completely unabated. 
treating any country in the world as a potential target, as the battlefield is defined as the entire globe. I mean, we even saw continuity between Clinton and Bush, especially on Iraq, because Clinton, if he was in office, say if he somehow was able to serve another term, it seemed like he might have actually invaded Iraq by the way his rhetoric was escalating and the different bombings he was doing against Iraq. We saw continuity between Bush and Obama on everything having to do with the post-9-11 era, save for some promises to end torture and stop the Iraq war, which Obama didn't technically really do either, um, if you really think about it. He increased troops in Afghanistan by around 30,000, new ground troop deployments in Syria, other countries, you know, Libya, a drastic increase in drone bombings. Then Trump gets in and actually escalates drone bombing campaign in the war on terror and, and, and sort of escalates the war on terror itself, but does double speak about stopping the endless war, sort of actually kind of similar to how Obama went into office acting like he was this anti-war guy. And Trump almost starts a full-scale war with Iran and Venezuela. I mean, the only positive form of continuity that you just sort of brought up was this idea that Trump, you know, even if he was just this bull in a china shop or not, that he represented in some way stepping away from these so-called international obligations, like overthrowing Assad, you know, specific ones, like overthrowing Assad or escalating tensions with Russia in a really severe way, like you know, sending troops into Crimea, things like that, that the actual neocon hawks wanted Obama to do. And even though what I'm saying is sort of a hair-thin line that both presidents clearly crossed in different ways, they were both still criticized by even mainstream media for not fulfilling these so-called obligations. And I'm, I'm talking about Trump and Obama. And then, of course, Trump ended up wanting to outdo Obama by sending $300 million of weapons to Ukraine, which is something that Obama did not do. And now with Biden, we actually scarily see continuity between his administration and Trump's administration on foreign policy, specifically on Iran. Acting during the election, Biden was sort of pretending that returning to JPCOA was this priority. They sent out all this signaling that it was one of their big things, one of their big foreign policy differences. We constantly commented, Abby, on how it didn't even seem like Biden really had much to say about foreign policy at all. No one really pressed him that hard on it. He just got by, skated by without really having to talk about it that much. Now that Trump pivoted in the opposite direction from Obama on the Iran deal, Biden seems to be content on continuing Trump's trajectory. He said clearly in an interview uh, when he was asked if any of these sanctions would be lifted on Iran to try to entice them to get into the deal again, he just flat out said no. And those sanctions in include really intense ones that Trump and Pompeo added. You know, these are there's all these sanctions that have been added since Trump's been in office. And Biden's like, no, flat out is disinterested. So that's a really bad sign, I think. And his administration, Abby, said that uh, Iran is 10 weeks away or actually maybe even less, like one week away. Is that what did he say? 10 or one no, week's away from? No, it's 10. Yeah, 10. Yeah. But, I mean, even Israel is is saying six months, which Jesus of course Christ. we know both are false. Iran has never pursued a nuclear weapon and it is just a completely false premise to begin with. So Blinken's fear mongering on Iran's nuclear capabilities is really, really impeding this whole negotiation and also just him um, kowtowing to Israel right off the bat because the original JPCOA was done in secret from Gulf states and Israel. And so he's acknowledged that that was actually a mistake. 
And so, of course, Israel doesn't want Iran to normalize relations with the U.S. Um, so it is very, very bad sign and very dangerous that, as you mentioned, Biden's trajectory right now seems to be going exactly with the plan that Trump implemented, which is maintaining genocidal level sanctions that Iranians are seeing malnutrition for the first time in months. We're talking about 800 plus sanctions on Iran targeting their civilians And the fact that Biden is not willing to let up any of these sanctions, not only the sanctions, but on top of outright political assassinations against one of their top generals, Soleimani, and a nuclear scientist working in conjunction with Israel, and the constant war games that are being committed to threaten and undermine Iran's sovereignty. All of these things are designed to completely humiliate and make Iran capitulate. Um, and have zero political leverage. You know, Iran has an election coming up, I think in June, and Iran has made very clear that they need some sanction relief in order to take this seriously. What was the point of even saying that you would be different than Trump? Because so far you're not doing anything differently than Trump. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of this stone-faced approach to it, actually. I mean, just looking at Biden in that interview, he does have a Trump-like stoicism, that's one, you know, even though he's extremely like sort of fuddy-duddy acting, he d- can barely talk a lot of the time. That interview appearance he did where he just flat out says no, I mean, to me that reminded me of something that, it just reminded me of a Trump vibe. Um, he wants to appear tough. So he's he's sort of already starting using this sort of quote-unquote big stick approach, which is just really uh, gross. Uh, because that was actually one small thing. I was like, okay, that's a given. He's yeah, just going to continue the Obama plan. No, it doesn't seem that way at all. I don't know if this is a head fake to Iran. That might be the most optimistic way to look at it. But Trump almost started a full-scale war with Iran. Right. He took us closer to war with Iran than we ever have been since I've been alive. So, uh so this, that's why you think, think Biden would want to <laughs> dial it back yeah, super exactly. hard and be like, dude, like, whoa, like yeah. we need to all take a step back. Like, oh my God, Trump really, really brought us on the precipice of war. Like we Fucking are sorry exactly, for what dude. he did. And instead, I mean, we knew what Biden said when Soleimani was assassinated. He basically just spoke out of both sides of his mouth and was like, this was ba- a, a bad strategic move. Like and Soleimani d- deserves to die, but he just like went about it in the wrong way. Yeah, Fuck, so, dude. And I know. and did you did you hear the details of how that recent uh, scientist was actually assassinated by? I don't know if it was the Mossad specifically, but it was like an Israeli um, assassination force that killed him. Yeah. And, yep. Do you hear about what they did? Wasn't it like a Breaking Bad style? It was. It was somehow. I thought I mistakenly said that, and I may have even said this on the podcast earlier. I thought there was surveillance footage of someone getting out of a car and assassinating somebody. Apparently, that was another assassination of somebody that already happened like months ago. This one was uh, done with an automated, mach- like a remote-controlled machine gun mm-hmm. somehow, mm-hmm. and I don't know where it fired from in another from another vehicle, but it was some kind of drone machine gun setup. So um, pretty fucking wild. And uh, it's almost like they're just trying to send some kind of point. That's almost like a theatrical assassination. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so disgusting how they're just forcing new concessions, extending way beyond the 2015 agreement. 
you know, demanding that Iran just fully, slavishly, like, bow down to the United States after the U.S. has engaged with so much open aggression and warfare against them in the last several years. It's pretty astounding the levels of imperial hubris that the U.S. is exerting here because the U.S. is who shredded up the fucking deal in the first place. And Iran has even said like, okay, let's let the EU handle it then. And, and Biden was just like, no. Yeah, this is uh, this administration is going to be a uh, quite a doozy. <laughs> it's going to be a doozy. <laughs> it's um, I mean, it sucks because I don't know if it was Branko we were talking to, but I actually, well, I thought that Biden might throw some curveballs in there and actually come out to the left on even Obama, some of Obama's positions somehow. Right. In some, you know, even in like a very small way. But this is like a very alarm. I mean, this one is particularly alarming. We're going to go into some of the other regions as well, but like this one to me, I think sends just a very big red flag up in the air. This is going to be a rough it, ride. It it does. And before we get into this country by country breakdown, it has to be mentioned just his ineffective and weak executive orders. And I don't want to get into all of them because we're going to focus on foreign policy, but it, you really can't look at any of this in a vacuum because we are the largest empire in the history of the world. We are the richest country in the history of the world. And in month, I don't know, 10, I, I don't even know how long we've been in this pandemic, but to still not have healthcare or stimulus <laughs> and to have this president promising very menial things like absolving $10,000 worth of student debt that he now is passing the buck off to Congress, which is hilarious because it's like, the, this is one of the few things you could do via executive order. And now he's just like, well, let's see what Congress has to say. It's like, well, they're not going to do shit. Um, and the stimulus, this wrangling and the hand wringing over $2,000 checks that he promised would go straight out the door. And now it's, you know, reads like a bad car loan. Like, okay, no, it's going to subsidize the Trump only gave you 600. And now it's only going to be for families that are making less than $50,000 and blah, blah, blah. It's like, dude, it's just so incomprehensible why he can't. it's like such an easy political win. You know, this check, the $2,000 stimulus checks and the Iran deal. It's like, dude, those are very easy political wins. You would start off like really strong if you just like did those things, which are very, very like minor. The $2,000 checks, a one time $2,000 check. Are you fucking kidding me? But even that would just be like, just do it, dude. Why aren't you giving us the checks? Because we have to accept at the end of the day, he doesn't want to. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> Biden, like, literally, like, he has so much capital, he has so much backing, and also has, of course, the 51% pool. Um, but he literally, at the end of the day, is, like, so right-wing that he actually doesn't want to give us anything, even if he can and even if he has the political capital to do so. And so that's what we're seeing with all the executive orders so far. Yeah, and I think it's not even it's not just him, it's the Democratic Party too. I I think in some ways it's very clarifying and it's good that it's becoming this clear that mm -hmm. even someone like Bernie who in the past would have come out to the left of Biden and been like, "No, you promised us $2,000. This is a trick." He's even trying to like equivocate and act like the $1,400 is the amount that's okay now. And it's like, dude, what the fuck are you saying that for? So it's better than Trump being in there and constantly doing the carrot on a stickification stuff. Of course. We're all going into this. Like, as you said, we don't have rose colored glasses. We're completely mm -hmm. 
facing the reality of this. There's not even like an Obama level of optical prettiness to the, what's happening. The people in charge don't even give a fuck. They don't have to do anything to appeal to people. In some ways, they're probably almost just hubristically thinking, well, Trump is just such a monster. Like, of course, right. they're just still going to vote for Democrats. It, they'd still have that thinking in their back pocket. Well, now that Trump isn't the big, the big threat, like, okay, look at the other guy. Now, I was getting a weird sense, and I don't want to go too much on a tangent about this, but I was getting a weird sense recently because of their hyper-focus on QAnon. And because of what happened at the Capitol, that instead of actually like... Marjorie Taylor Greene's a new Trump. Though, yes. Yeah, that's what I was She's just going to say, is that Trump, now they're going dude. to paint, they're going to yeah. paint, the GOP is the party of QAnon, and we're not the party of QAnon. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's like their new thing moving forward, which is just such a bizarre, instead of actually giving us anything, it's like... Well, well it's almost like know. saying that Trump is Hitler and we're not Hitler, but then yeah. it, in reality, it's like you really don't think that he's Hitler. If you did, you would be like acting much different. Just like right. if you really believe the gravity of what you're saying, that the Republican Party is the party of QAnon, you would be acting way differently during this impeachment trial. I mean, you'd just be saying much different things about the gravity of what happened, but they don't, I don't think they really think that it's, so yeah, you're, they're just, it's just, again, just more trying to perpetuate that look at the craziest, but it also is simultaneously, it is really crazy that the Republicans like won't denounce her. Right, right. They can't like cut off the right. QAnon tumor yet. The whole thing is fucking crazy. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from like this low level trauma that's constantly happening. The fact that people don't have healthcare and we're in a pandemic and so many more millions of people are now plunged into poverty. So many kids are without food. People are losing their homes. People are losing their jobs. All of these things compounded. And then like every so often, like every couple of weeks, not only will we hear that the government is refusing to give us scraps off the table, but that they're passing these massive bills that just throw hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars at foreign countries you know, like Israel, like in the latest COVID relief package or the $500 million given to Venezuelan opposition forces. It's like you have to like block out everything because it's like so upsetting. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm sure Americans who are just um, inundated with survival right now aren't really paying attention to these headlines and stuff, but it's like, what does that do to you? When you're a child of the empire, you're an empire baby, and you aren't getting taken care of because Every single cent is being squandered on building up this giant military apparatus that is not only subsidizing apartheid regimes that are committing genocide against people like Israel, um, but also just like going to just bombing poor people around the world. It's just like very surreal, you know, it's a very surreal thing. And I don't know what that does to your psyche, like the collective consciousness of American citizens. What is that doing? I, I think we're just so many layers deep at this point, Abby. I mean, I think mm -hmm. there might have been some guilt among earlier generations who sort of saw a lot of this stuff unfold and saw the horrors of war on television and living through Iraq and knowing that we, our tax dollars, were literally killing whole families, that American soldiers were kicking in doors, people were getting raped you know, by American soldiers tortured, uh, uh, just turned into human hamburger patty meat on the side of the street, you know, like all every day. It was just like so horrifying that I don't, I, I think it actually will take something like that. I, I don't know. But, you know, the way that we wage wars now, I don't foresee the United States doing something that brazen anytime soon. They figured out some kind of other model on how to do what they need to do for now.
without making it that brazen. There might be a time coming soon, I don't know, where we'll need to throw down our footprint like that in this sort of really showy way. And if that happens, maybe other people will wake up to it, Abby. But I, I just, I think that especially younger generations, they have no idea. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And, and the U.S., side note, the U.S. has been bombing Iraq for 30 years. And on right. this day, the day that we're recording, on this day in 1991, the U.S. bombed that civilian air raid shelter in Iraq, which was sheltering a 1,000 civilians sleeping, massacring 408 Iraqis, 261 of which were women and 52 children. So that happened, um, and here we are continuing to bomb Iraq and as you mentioned, it just becomes so normalized and we're so detached from it that it's just like, well, we've always been bombing Iraq. Iraq is a really interesting example of all this because it's sort of set the stage for this new way of waging a propaganda war to sell a war. You know, the CNN 24-hour news coverage of Iraq was this whole new thing. You know, they made it into just this mm -hmm. new entertainment phenomenon. And then you also have this idea that you know, out of all the terrible things that we saw in the second Iraq war under the Bush era, there was never anything that the U.S. military did that was as insane in one photographic depiction as the highway of death was during the first Gulf War. Now, think about that for a second, because I think that we, you know, there is actually some evidence that this happened, that we pulled out of the first Iraq war faster than we were originally planning to because we did not want to inflict more potential press coverage of of horrifying like incidents like that that we were doing at the time because it was almost like one of the first major technological wars since vietnam you know and you fast forward 20 years of our technological advancements yeah we have the bombs now where we could just blow away an entire freeway of cars from like one plane and kill everybody like instantly you know and mm -hmm. i don't think that that was really it was almost like because even just a few of those photographs floating around, um, I think it was almost too much liability in some weird way. But so, Robbie, I thought Russia did that, according to like that video game. What was it? Oh, <laughs> they, shit. They actually yeah, accused Russia of committing the highway of death in Iraq. Yeah, you're right. Um, but that, I mean, just, and just the fact that we never saw, and I guess to finish mm -hmm. my point is we never saw those photos. We never heard about that while it was happening until, you know, maybe some people who really followed politics back then heard about it. I did not hear about that until like maybe 20 years later or 15 years later um, and finally looked up photos on the internet like in the early 2000s when the second Iraq war first started. And I was like, holy Which shit. shows you how press must have been pretty tightly controlled back then too, in terms of being like a propaganda mouthpiece for the Pentagon, you know. Summing up like your whole, you know, introduction to the war on terror and how this is kind of a continuous bipartisan thing and unchanging between who's president really it has to be mentioned that drone strikes in general, which you're talking about this kind of technological advancement of the war on terror that now it's become perfectly acceptable and normalized in the eyes of many, many people that the U.S. carries out extrajudicial drone strikes, assassinating people all over the world, anywhere at any time, completely extra legally. And the fact that two allegedly anti-war candidates, you know, for the most part, anti-regime change war, Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard during the campaign did not have a problem with this type of warfare, drone strikes, the AUMF. Yeah. I mean, I think Bernie may have talked about 
wanting to rein back the AUMF, but he certainly didn't specify what he meant by that or what would happen in terms of drones. He said very little. This is a very, very problematic thing. And it really shows you how far we've strayed from what it means to really be anti-war, you know, and you, you talk about this constantly, like this ubiquitous threat of Al Qaeda that just now permeates worldwide Mm -hmm. and no one really questions it. Like, yeah, of course, I think the majority of people would just be like, yeah, of course we don't want to invade and occupy a country, but what is this doing again? Like what, like the collective consciousness of the globe, like the drone strikes are so disturbing to me. And that's just something that's happening all the time. And no politician really talks about it at all. Yeah. I mean, and this is, this is just going back to Biden really quick with what you're talking about is this idea of what presidential war powers are. I'm not even talking about what the U S government should be doing on a moral or justified level. Bernie and Tulsi, um, you know, they probably think it's justified. Uh, I would imagine on some level to just be able to do that anywhere where there is some kind of quote unquote terrorist that quote unquote poses a threat to the United States. I would imagine they take more, more or less an Obama style approach to that. But there was an extreme lack of them talking about it from what I remember. Mm-hmm. But this idea that a president has certain war powers or what their sort of own legal counsel or what the understanding is of what their war powers are has changed for Biden over time. When he was a presidential candidate in 2007, he took this survey that I guess is done by this guy named Charlie Savage that was done for every presidential election. And the candidates don't have to answer all the questions, but they usually answer most of them. And in the survey, uh, he essentially said that he was not even for the idea of the executive branch doing sort of a limited or narrow strike. That's what the Bush administration had sort of defined in the war on terror. And even Clinton was doing that kind of stuff and had justified it. But back then, he he said that Congress should have authority to even decide on that. Now, uh, in 2019, when he was interviewed in the same survey, he is completely 100% behind sort of the president's unilateral authority to actually do, you know, whatever quote-unquote limited and narrow strikes are justifiable. But that's the thing. It's like it just opens this huge door to what does that even mean? What is a small strike? What is actually considered a war and what isn't? I mean, obviously this would define, you know, a president can authorize direct drone strikes like Obama and Trump were doing. But what does this mean technically? Like how many troops would be allowed in this kind of unilateral thing? That's not really a surprise at all. I mean, because even Obama talked out both sides of his mouth. He acted like the president shouldn't have these unilateral authorities and that Congress should, but then he decided to bomb Libya, you know, without congressional approval. And also the Office of Legal Counsel has been essentially echoing the same thing throughout the past few administrations that presidents legally do have the authority to authorize limited military strikes. And under Bush, this is what they actually said in this um, Office of Legal Counsel memo to Bush, that the nature and scope of duration, if they fall short of war, they therefore do not require congressional approval. What does that mean? Right. It just doesn't really mean anything, is what I'm saying. Because we've really blurred the line here between what a war is and what isn't, and what's just some kind of military strike. and. It's not just drone strikes that are really prevalent in the war on terror. It's all these sort of like Delta raid 
strikes. Right. Like where they actually send in a small team of like Navy SEALs or troop tactical troops to assassinate somebody like the Phoenix program and then get out of there. Well, it's a really good point, Robbie, because one thing that is most notable about Biden's reinheritance, you know, as CEO of the empire or whatever, because he was vice president for eight years, you know, he's been a senator for decades. And so he's been instrumental in a lot of these big, giant foreign policy decisions um, over the past couple decades, the most disastrous ones. And his cabinet is comprised of people who were also complicit in some of the biggest scandals in the last 10 years, torture, the invasion of Iraq, the bombing of Libya, the drone empire. And what is interesting about it, as you're talking about this, is that Obama increased things dramatically from the Bush administration, right? He infamously started bombing more countries, escalated drone strikes to a ridiculous level, um, made things much more difficult to rein back. Trump comes in and totally blows it up, right? Increases drone strikes 350%, doubles civilian casualties, tells the Pentagon to take the gloves off, um, makes things so much less transparent, makes it much harder to even find out who's being killed. All of those things and the privatization increases uh, mercenaries everywhere, all that stuff. Sanctions, genocidal sanctions all over the world, hundreds and hundreds of sanctions across Latin America and Iran, most notably. Biden coming back in with the Obama foreign policy alumni and not talking about reining any of that back is just a very interesting, as you're mentioning, the continuity of empire, but also the continuity of the expansion of empire that continues under each administration. It keeps getting passed off. The torch of empire keeps getting passed off and it just continues to grow. And no one talks about that as it gets handed over. Like the fact that Space Force, Trump created yeah. this whole other agency that now Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, is saying we're very excited to oversee this new agency. This isn't a joke. This is something that is not only squandering hundreds of millions of dollars from social services in this country, but it also is violating several treaties in space. It's starting a new arms war, arms race, um, with all these other countries that basically had an international agreement to not weaponized space. Um, this goes back to the Reagan administration, as we know. So this is actually really serious shit, you know, and this is just understood. It's like, okay, well, Biden's taking over Space Force now. It's like there's no discussion of what Trump did that is bad in that realm because it's all good and it all just keeps expanding and growing. But they're throwing us the, the, the we're going to close Gitmo bone. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I mean, so they are. I mean, come on. You got to at least give them a pat on the back for that one. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's going to happen, right? Of course. Um, I mean, Jesus Christ. They're never... I mean, the, the sad thing is they. it's just basically a show gulag where these people mm-hmm. have not been given any civil rights whatsoever. They can't try them. That's such a fucked, sad situation. No, because now they'll just say, well, now they're going to commit terrorism. Yeah, the whole out, thing is, you know? is they're never they're never going to close it. They aren't. I mean, I want it to be closed. Obviously, I think it's a complete uh, horror show that they even did that. But I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. But back to what you're saying about this not reeling things back. I mean, even just we forget sometimes, I think, you know, we're we're under this sort of impression now. It's like, oh, my God, Trump just jacked things up so hard that there will never be any unity between the Republicans and Democrats anymore. Well, 
that's not true because even after Trump talked so much shit about you know the previous administration, Obama's administration, he kept Comey on originally. He kept him on as FBI director. It flies in the face of this impression we're, we're being given that these people are just all totally at odds with each other. Robert Gates from the Bush administration, after Rumsfeld left, uh, he Robert Gates stepped in as the defense secretary under Bush. He stayed on under Obama. And I remember back then that was one of the biggest signals that this is not really going to be a reversal of the Bush era, that mm-hmm. this is almost going to be done to codify the Bush era, that that's mm-hmm. what Obama was going to do. And that's what he did. He was there to sort of distract everybody into thinking he was this great person. The whole time he was just sort of codifying that expansion of empire that you're talking about. And now, now Christopher Ray mm-hmm. from the Trump administration, this really right wing, crazy FBI director who was saying all this really, you know, paranoid shit about China, really amping things up in that direction. Biden keeps him on as FBI director. So, what does that tell you? It was almost like Trump was the blunt force object ramming through a bunch of the crazy shit that they always wanted to do but couldn't, like yeah. the, recognizing the embassy, you know, moving yeah, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem yeah. um, and then just keeping it, you know, like putting the sanctions on Iran and then just being like, well, we might as well just start where Trump left off and accept what Trump did can't be changed and we just move forward from there. This word neoliberal is thrown out a lot, you know, and it means something specific. It doesn't just mean someone who isn't as ultra left as you want them to be. <laughs> like, it, it's actually like an ideology that is pro privatization and austerity and also pro war, right? This notion that we need to engage in warfare under the pretense that it is for humanitarian reasons and this kind of weaponization of human rights. Um, and also the exploitation of identity politics, um, very cynically, if I might add. And what Biden has done with this cabinet is this artificial change, this very superficial change on like fulfilling a diversity quota, like basically just saying we are the most diverse cabinet in the history of presidential politics. And that's really all these people are touting as the biggest change from Trump, because Trump, I guess, is associated with like white nationalism and racism and xenophobia. And so if he just rams through like black people and women and like other people of color in these positions, then somehow we are really, really different from our predecessor. And that's really all he's done, Robbie, because as we're looking at the policies here, he is just going exactly the way that Trump did when it comes to China and actually ramping things up with several countries. And it is very, very disturbing. It is very, very disturbing. So do you want to get into some of these countries and we can really talk about the nitty gritty of what's going on here so far? Yeah. Week three. Yeah. He made his first weapon sale to Chile, a country that was infamously, you know, committing very serious human rights abuses against protesters during their mass protests a couple months ago. We did an interview with Pablo Vivanco on Media Roots Radio. People can check out if you want to learn more about that. But yeah, I mean, police were like shooting protesters in the eyes. Let's go off on Yemen now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this seems to be the one thing they really wanted to telegraph going in, um, the signaling of some kind of drawback from the Trump era. And even though Obama technically started this situation. Uh, this was something that Trump significantly escalated um, during his four years in office. Uh, so Biden 
you know, has gone in there having his people put out nice sounding rhetoric. Um, they technically already removed the Houthis from the terrorism designation. Um, I, I think they technically already did. Um, yeah. They're, uh, you know, they said that there's going to be no more active military support for Saudi Arabia's, uh, you know, assaults there in Yemen. Um, but, you know, I don't know if I really buy that because does this mean no logistical support of any kind? I don't believe that it really does. I, I think that it just means, technically speaking, they might not be engaging, you know, on the ground as much or something because they actually had some people there. Um, as far as I know, like there, there were actual personnel, um, involved. I mean, it's not just like air support. Um, so, but I guess, you know, what do you think, Abby? What do you know about what the actual weapons deals are going to be like? Are they actually saying they're going to stop funding this, you know, sending Saudi Arabia weapons or money for weapons? I mean, what, what's, what's actually happening here? Sure. I just did a video for Empire Files people can check out. But basically, Biden made a pretty shifty declaration here. And like you said, Trump ramped this up. One of his last acts was actually expediting weapon shipments to UAE and Saudi. Um, and of course, vetoed that resolution that could have ended U.S.-backed arms. What Biden did on January 4th during his first major foreign policy announcement was declare an end to the war in Yemen. But if you actually analyze what he said, it's full of doublespeak uh, that could mean a lot of things. And really, when you look at the key words he used, it's pretty obvious that <laughs> we should have taken it from him. Nothing will fundamentally change. The word that he used specifically was an end to, quote, offensive support and an end to, quote, relevant arms sales. So if you're looking at like how the Obama-Biden administration got into the war in the first place in 2015 with the pretense that it was all done defensively to defend Saudi Arabia and defend its border. So what is an offensive support for the war versus a defensive support for the war? If you're really looking at the justification on behalf of Saudi Arabia, the entire war is defensive, according to Saudi yeah. And that's exactly what was used to justify the training of forces, the logistical and tactical support for the targeting of the rebels on the ground, the designation of the terrorist label against the Houthi rebels. All of these things were done in a, quote, defensive manner to defend our great ally, Saudi Arabia. So that is a very worrisome word. Um, and also relevant arms sales. Wait, so we're not ending arms sales in general to UAE and Saudi? We're just ending relevant arms sales. How are we going to track what missiles are going to fire at civilians in Yemen? How are we going to track what Lockheed Martin missiles are going to act defensively versus offensively? At the end of the day, Robbie, this could really mean nothing will change at all other than placating the anti-war crowd that rightly so has like pushed Biden to even address this at least because Biden's team and Biden himself started this war, right? Started supporting this war back in 2015. And the fact that he's feeling pressured to advocate a change in policy and rebuke Saudi Arabia is a huge move and a testament to the anti-war community. However, 
We have to hold him to account here. Then you look at Blinken saying he wants to sanction the Houthi rebels who control 80% of Yemeni territory. How will we get desperately needed aid into the Yemenis if we're sanctioning the Houthis that he claims controls 80% of Yemen? And then, of course, Robbie, the U.S. is still going to be bombing al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula under the war on terror. I mean, the thing with that is it sounds like they're trying to act like they're only going to be supporting Saudi Arabia with defensive weaponry or money for defensive weaponry. And I would imagine they're going to use the same kind of breakdown that they would use for like when talking about Ukraine, because before Mm -hmm. that $300 million supplemental that had been held back for so long, it was apparently only defensive weaponry that was being sent to Ukraine. And the way they would distinguish it is they would say that we're only providing you know, tactical training, uh, we're providing things like radar, we're providing armor, like that's how they would define defensive. And then apparently the uh, offensive uh, like designation is for things like javelin missiles, surface to air <laughs> missiles that can shoot down <laughs> planes. So that's how they claim it breaks down. But what you said is like, how do they even distinguish it? That's the interesting question. Cause like, I don't think that when it you know, when it comes down to the granularity of it, some of this money has to just go into some kind of like black hole area where there's no paper trail. So of course, if you're, especially if you're funding like militias, it's like, where are they getting the supplies? Like nobody mm-hmm. really even covers this stuff at the level that it should be. I mean, it's a real clusterfuck. It is indeed. So yeah, we have to keep the pressure up. We have to keep the pressure up because this really means nothing yet. There's real no significant change in posturing towards Israel. It seems like Netanyahu uh, does want to have some kind of alliance with Biden. It, they, they, there doesn't seem to be any sour grapes between the two in any way yet. What is this aid package um, that Trump ended, Abby, that was supposed to be relief for Palestinians? And is that is there any chance of that coming back? Yeah, Blinken and Biden have signaled that they will immediately reinstate the aid, the UNRWA aid, the United Nations um, Relief Agency that was supplying millions of Palestinian refugees like direct food and medicine that are under blockades or siege in the Gaza Strip. And so that was a huge thing that Trump did that was very sadistic um, and disgusting. But, you know, we were expecting Biden to do that. Of course, it's a Band-Aid on the situation, but it is a big deal. But yeah, Blinken has signaled that everything else stays intact. The embassy stays. He even praised Trump for these normalization deals with Gulf states and Israel, which really is nothing but like saying fuck you to Palestine. You know, it's basically like the nail in the coffin for all of these Gulf states when they had already normalized relations with Israel, this is just bringing it out in the open so they could actually do more trade and weapons deals with Israel because Israel is also a huge weapons supplier. He really had no strong words at all for the annexation, for the increase in settlements, for Trump's disgusting partnership with Netanyahu, for Jared Kushner's family's personal profiting off Israel. So... Uh, it looks like more of the same. We know that Biden is was probably the biggest Zionist in the Democratic primary field, and we expect the horrific atrocities to continue against Palestinians unabated under Biden. Yeah, and just going back to this idea of continuity, and you're saying Blinken was praising some of Trump's um, 
you know, uh, results, I guess, if you could call them, uh, Betsy DeVos, uh, was called in to testify in a class action lawsuit, um, for this, uh, loan forgiveness, um, uh, investigation and the Biden justice department actually dismissed the motion and made it so she didn't have to testify. So that's sort of an interesting quote unquote return to civility. Um, if you want to call it that, or rather continuity, you know, sort of a, a, a secret handshake between the two administrations. Um, so, you know, it not, it not surprising at all, um, that there would be, you know, some, mm. it's like I said, this, like things, are really divided the polarization in this country is real but the political class are actually not the ones really suffering from it as much as the public is they're like they do deals all the time there's tons of republicans and democrats agree with each other on shit i mean Mm -hmm. it's just yeah yeah for Um, as much as republicans want to paint democrats as like the epitome of all evil democrats seem more than willing to bend over backward to work with them on everything so well, especially you when know. it comes to stuff like weapons supplementals. Yeah, I mean, right. How many times is there like a bill that gets deadlocked that's like, you know, $850 billion for weapons? I mean, it's almost every single time it goes through. Yeah, that's what I was talking about before. It's like, meanwhile, they're fighting for six months over to give us a one-time $2,000 check. But like every couple of weeks, they just like sign off on like a trillion dollar like <laughs> NDAA that just funds the empire. It's just like, okay. Cool. It's fucking horrible. Um, let me just briefly talk about Afghanistan because everyone gave Trump credit for this Taliban peace deal and also like ending the war, quote unquote, by withdrawing the troops. That didn't happen. You know, we know that he increased troops. We know that he increased bombing. I'm not going to belabor all of that again. But turns out, Robbie, he actually ended up privatizing the war. Um, he left 2,500 troops but he actually added thousands of private mercenaries. We don't know if it was at the behest of Eric Prince, his good friend and anti-deep state hero by the likes of Gateway Pundit. Um, but turns out what Eric Prince was lobbying for kind of happened. 18,000 private contractors are there right now. Biden has said nothing to change course. The peace deal being negotiated Perplexingly, the U.S. put all of these impossible benchmarks on the deal itself that it fell apart immediately. And the U.S. continued to bomb Afghanistan like days after the last iteration of that peace deal went through. So as of right now, there are 18,000 private mercenaries, 10,000 more troops under NATO command, like the Australian troops that were committing war crimes. Those are all under the control and command of U.S. generals. So that's what's happening right now, man. Um, this is a huge deal because the biggest number of private mercenaries that existed throughout the war was 5,000 during Obama's ill-fated troop surge. And then like Trump ramped it up to 5,900, which was seen as a really big deal back then in 2017. Cause it was like a number never before seen. And now it's just like, okay, 18,000 private contractors are there. Like, all right, where do we go from here? Biden has already said he wants thousands of troops to remain, so he's basically pledged to continue the war indefinitely. Yeah, it's such a it is a really weird thing because you know, what is the end game actually in Afghanistan right now? I mean, and this might be an obvious point to a lot of people listening, but how many people out there listening right now have actually looked at a map of China and seen where it is in terms of 
how close it is to Afghanistan. Um, they actually share a part of a border together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you have to wonder if this original geostrategic plan, you know, that was repeatedly laid out by different policymakers and think tanks, including Project for the New American Century, which talked about eventually dominating China in land, space, and air, the majority of projects for the New American Century's Rebuilding America's Defenses paper is about China, actually. So, I mean, how much of a role does Afghanistan play into this? And I think, especially during the Biden era, I mean, talk about, you know, tugging at our heartstrings, Abby, and sort of playing into identity politics. I mean, get fucking ready for a really huge injection of sketchy and hard to verify Uyghur coverage in the mainstream media mm -hmm. about these so-called concentration camps that they're repeatedly talking about. You know, we're seeing a lot, we're going to probably see a lot of stuff in Bellingcat about it. And just back to Yemen really quickly, I forgot to mention this. Uh, Bellingcat has actually been on this really weird um, beat recently where they're really going after the Houthis and showing how they're the ones really making the war way worse for the Yemenis and they're to blame. And that's sort of the tone of it, but they're doing it all through, you know, aerial photos and data and stuff like that. But it's like, why are they, fo like, who's dumping all this stuff to Bellingcat? You know, it's just an odd sort of core, like, like trajectory of investigation for them to do. Because now they've sort of gotten into this far right watching beat. You know, they were even identifying capital rioters. But, mm -hmm. you know, I could see them getting into this Uyghur thing. And there's already a lot of sketchy Uyghur accounts on social media that have posted a lot of, you know, things that are essentially fake news or completely out of context clips of like children crying in China, you know, where it's just like a, a totally normal uh, video clip of something where they've taken, they've said in the caption that it's like a child, you know, being separated from their mom who's about to go to a Uyghur concentration camp and things like that. So you just have to be really careful about what you're looking at out there. Um, you know, there's, you know, just for example, there's a fake uh, Iranian dissident account, Abby, and you've probably seen this uh, on Twitter before. His name is Heshmat Alavi, and he get got retweeted by Trump a few months before Trump left office. When in fact, this person Heshmat Alavi is actually an amalgamation of a team of MEK assets, aka trolls, working from a propaganda troll factory in Albania. And they all just post as this guy and like pretend it's like a guy who's a dissident. And he's got like a Holy couple, shit. like 300,000 followers or something on Twitter. Um, so he's basically just like a, a neocon front operation for the MEK to just like stir up, you know, tensions against Iran. It's just, and then, you know, I don't know if we already mentioned this. There was a deep fake uh, editorialist discovered that was like supposed to be like an Israeli guy who was, you know, um, who's taking like the Zionist point of view in an, in an editorial for some Israeli uh, outlet online. And it was found out that he was like a deep fake generated face awesome. that he was, wasn't even a real person. So awesome. what I'm saying is let's be really careful out there, you know, getting outraged. I I'm outraged just as much as anybody who lived through the horror show of the war on terror about any persecution of Muslims. That's a very sensitive spot for me. And what I'm concerned about is this sort of distorted, dishonest, you know, coverage that we, we don't know if it's real or not. And, and it, it is, we do have to question some of the sources that it's coming from too. A lot of the time this stuff is coming 
from think tanks or from people who are associated with these sort of these right wing think tanks. And they don't they don't really care about Muslims. So how do we know they're actually, you know, how do we know this data or what these stories are telling are verifiable? So I just want people I just implore people to be careful out there um about that. Yeah, and China is what the folk if China and Russia are the big focuses right now for Biden. Blinken has made that very clear. He called President Xi Jinping on Chinese New Year to basically just like trash talk him, um, which I found really bizarre. Like what a weird thing to just call uh, the president of China on Chinese New Year and be like, fuck you. We're like ready to go, dude. Okay, so that's great. Well, so even that story that came out uh, like a month and a half ago saying that there's signs that because Biden changed his language on some Chinese region, he like changed the way he described it. They were like, no. uh, I think there was even an article in the Wall Street Journal that was like, okay, this is totally means that Biden is going to do like a China reset now. <laughs> no, it's so he's going to bring a big red button, like Hillary yeah, that he would like that they're going to the do a China reset. And I was kind of almost taking the position, well, if they do that, then everyone's just going to pounce down their throats, like right. and say that they're controlled by China. I know. I was just going to say that I'm surprised whatever editorial you were reading wasn't like, this is a very troublesome language shift. Like Biden really needs to stay strong. Like, no, it was almost kind of like Chinese aggression. It wasn't celebrating him, but it was just sort of taking this. I was surprised how neutral the article was actually. Yeah, it was well, kind of funny. I, I, as you mentioned, there's already war games between the island of Taiwan, mainland China, which is already very you know aggressive. Already there are measures that Blinken and Biden's um, national security team are taking to like reach out to Taiwanese officials, which is just hostile in itself, like immediately in the new administration. I listened to Mike Pompeo's closing speech about China, where he said China's committing genocide against the Uyghurs and, you know, talks about blaming China for the coronavirus, essentially. And then you hear Blinken giving his first kind of speech on China and it's really not that much different. You know, he yeah. basically commends Trump, he commends Pompeo. He says he agrees with all of what Mike Pompeo said. He says, quote, Trump was right in taking a tougher approach. Essentially going back to the great global power competition doctrine that says that we need like this imperial alliance to isolate and confront China. That's essentially what Blinken's whole strategy is coming at China with this united front because he's worried, going back to the Kagan mentality, that like if the U.S. isn't the dominant empire, China will rise to take its place or whatever. And so that's where they're coming from. It's all very just outlandish because it's all just projection on like what the U.S. is doing. You know, like all of these people talking about how China is cynically exploiting the, the coronavirus pandemic to do this and that. It's like, what the fuck do you think the U.S. has been doing? Yeah. You know? And it's and, a lot and, of that victim mentality uh, stuff yeah. too, where it makes it seem like, you know, China is like imminently going to take over. I mean, there's yeah. even like timelines I've seen now people saying like China's going to be the world's global power, like military, economically by like 2040. Like they're already just like, what? boom. There's even people like saying like 2036 and all this shit. It's like they're, I've even seen quicker timelines, you know, like that it's like sometime in the 2020s. It's just like, come on, guys. Like. <laughs> I just wanted to mention quickly that on November 6th, just the day after the election, Pompeo actually announced uh, that the Er East Turkestan, the East 
Turkestan Islamic Movement, the ETIM, will be removed from the designated U.S. terror list because, according to Pompeo, the U.S. analysts believe that it does not exist. And this is a group that China has long blamed for some of their crackdowns on various people in Uyghur communities over this specific group. Um, So it's very interesting that here is Pompeo saying, yeah, that China is exaggerating the existence of the ETIM because we know that the U.S. grossly exaggerated the presence of Al-Qaeda at the very beginning of, uh, right after 9-11. I mean, it made it it seem like we needed needed to invade Afghanistan to somehow Mm -hmm. destroy Al-Qaeda when it was like in reality... There was probably maybe just like a handful of Al Qaeda soldiers, or if you want to call them soldiers, there. And people have estimated that the actual worldwide membership of Al Qaeda at the time of 9 11 was no more than 100 total. I mean, that's ridiculous. So it's like, who's exaggerating what here? <laughs> like, come on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, really, it's just sort of like pot calling the kettle black stuff. I mean, f- f- I would probably believe, you know, believe China more than the US, but at the same time, like I said, this is a very sensitive area for me, and I'm not going to automatically believe China's own fear-mongering about the ETIM either. You know, I don't know enough about them. I'm sure that they probably are sketchy, like the MEK or something, but I don't know enough about you know them, their, their presence in the Uyghur population. I've seen other leftists trying to be like, yeah, like they try to justify the, the stories about Uyghurs that are coming out, and it's like, I feel like that's a very poor way to approach a subject because, you know, I I, I just don't, I I need to learn more about it, frankly, um, Mm -hmm. to be able to form a coherent opinion. Just know that China and Afghanistan do share a border and there have been some militias that have gone across the border. um, And who knows if some of those are U.S. proxy forces or not, you know, I mean, it's, it seems very potentially likely to me. I don't know. um, But I, I think it's worth considering. That's all. Yeah, and I mean, I guess in Syria and Iraq, um, right, uh, you know, after the capital siege, if you want to call it that, uh, there was a story, a fake news story floating around by all these sort of, you know, MAGA people saying like, oh, Biden's trying to restart the Iraq war that Trump ended. And they were trying to imply that there was like thousands of troops being sent into Iraq suddenly from zero. Well, we already know that Trump didn't take all, out all the troops from Iraq. I mean, that we already know that. Or Syria. So that's not true in the first place. But this story was just spreading around by this guy on Twitter who went by the name A. Muse. And it was a sourceless claim that he posted an article that was talking about a bombing that had just occurred in Iraq that was maybe going to cause the U.S. to have to up the pre- their presence there again. But it was just like someone's opinion talking about that. But instead, this guy posted this article and made up like a fake um, like section of the article saying that a thousand or more troops were going back to Iraq. And this went like extremely viral, even on the left, Abby. I saw like, no joke, 50% of like the leftist I followed on Twitter posting this as if it was a real news story. Um, and uh, it was very odd, but apparently that's not happening. But there's, but the, I guess the more disturbing thing is there's just again no sense of any change. There's no, um, there isn't any promise or even out. Uh, Biden hasn't said anything as far as I know about um, removing the presence there. So 
you know, I would say it's it's not unlikely that more troops will be sent there, but we just don't. I, it's not clear yet exactly what's happening. Maybe you have some more information about that. No, it, I was very alarmed to see that tweet uncritically being shared and also repeated on places like the hills rising by Sagar and Jetty. <laughs> um, it's very alarming. Look, we need to critically analyze these things. You don't need to make things up about Biden. His administration is horrible enough. We need to stay laser focused on like what is actually happening on the ground. And what's interesting about the Iraq thing is that Trump dramatically escalated troops in Iraq that I don't remember anyone talking about, you know, to kill ISIS or whatever. Um, So he basically like oversaw a third iteration of the Iraq war that no one really cared about because I guess ISIS are subhuman that it doesn't really matter what is done to them. So there are still troops in Iraq. There always have been. Of course, there's still airstrikes going on. Trump was alleged to have removed the troops from Syria. We know that that didn't happen. There were always troops in Syria. He bragged also saying that troops were there guarding the oil, um, guarding the oil. And so I actually saw another fake story about Biden ramping up military aggression in Syria, showing photos of like this armored military vehicle. And that was fake, too, because even though I'm sure he will, because a lot of his security team, which we'll talk about, are very, very pro regime change in Syria. And in fact, thought we didn't go far enough when it came to the no fly zone and the the whole war under Obama. Um, That hasn't happened yet. Right. Like he hasn't sent more troops in Syria. He hasn't done really anything when it comes to Syria. So, again, like, let's just stay on top of what's really going on and just like see the news with a little bit more of a critical eye because we're going to have a lot of head fakes. Like I was saying before, I think the one thing we, we can gather from Biden so far is he doesn't seem to be a very good liar. He just doesn't say, he hasn't really said very much so far. Like he Mm -hmm. is sort of like a ghost in the white house. Um, But I I think, you know, he was pretty blunt about the Iran thing. He didn't want, he didn't give anything, any hope whatsoever. It's like, I don't know if he was unprepared or he just didn't care, but he just seemed pretty, you know, he wanted that disappointment to sink in, I guess, right away. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not saying that I was even disappointed because I just like, it was just weird to see him just so callously be like, no, like, no, no, no plan to move any sanctions at all. And he didn't even want to say anything else either. I wanted to introduce the Russia part because in his speech on January 4th, Biden said, quote, I made it clear to Putin in a manner very different from my predecessor that the days of the U.S. rolling over in the face of Russia's aggressive actions, interfering with our elections, cyber attacks, poisoning its citizens are over. So how is that an aggressive action against the U.S., this Navalny alleged poisoning of Navalny? Because he's a fucking uh, extremely (laughs) democracy, like supporting, um, like, uh, you know, liberal values pushing, you know, very radical dude who we need to support. I mean, it's just funny that now he's, it's almost like they've gone through Pussy Riot. They've gone through Bill Browder. I I feel like they're almost like not usable anymore or something. Like they're they're just, they've expended their usefulness. So it's Mm -hmm. like going to Nelvani now as the guy to like hoist up is just kind of almost sad because he's like a total fucking right. He's very far right. Like, right. I mean, if you think Putin's bad, um, you should see some of the things that he said about Muslims and gay people. Yeah. I mean, he's extremely, extremely, uh, you know, 
distasteful. But anyways, yeah, it's it's it, the timing actually could not be more convenient. T- talking about a reset of some kind, resetting us back right into like the last two years of the Obama administration and their dynamic with Russia. It's almost like bringing us back to that same thing. You know, this protest happened in Russia right mm-hmm. around the same time. There was all this press about it. It just set, sort of setting the stage perfectly for, you know, what we've already gone through before. And I don't say that with any exaggeration because Victoria Newland is back in the administration. She hasn't gone through her confirmation hearing yet, I don't think. But she's in the State Department, or she got appointed to the State Department. Mm-hmm. And now I think one of the best indications of where Biden's foreign policy is going to go in terms of Russia is going to be from her op-ed written in August 2020 for a foreign affairs magazine. It's called Pinning Down Putin, How Confident America Should Deal with Russia. And one of the most interesting things about this editorial is that the whole tone of it, Abby, is that it's all about how every administration since George W. Bush has not taken the threat of Russia seriously enough and how they wow. all like dropped the ball and like failed to do to act appropriately to contain Putin and Russia. So wow. essentially she's advocating for a more hawkish posture overall than all the three previous administrations, which is just disturbing in and of itself. I mean, we already saw how escalated things got during the Obama administration. I mean, even uh, she even describes the Bush administration in this editorial as being just lackadaisical and not acting, kind of ignoring and pushing Russia off to the side when we did that Poland missile defense shield deal where it was completely uh, designed to like be against Russia. We, we, we were acting like we are going to put this missile defense shield uh, thing in Poland for Iran, which didn't even make any sense at the end of the Bush administration. I mean, it was, a, yeah, so it was obviously that. for Russia. Your interview on status quo was important because you go very deep into Newland and a lot of these think tanks that they come from. And you made the point that I think people should really remember is that Obama resisted a lot of the push from these foreign policy hawks uh, or anti-Russia hawks, rather, people like Noland um, in the latter half of his presidency. And Biden will not do that. Biden will be puppeted much easier. He is uh, just a ghost that's losing his mind. I mean, you could just see in the speeches, it's like just very apparent, you know, that he's just going to be steered in whatever direction the people he's appointed to surround himself will want him to be steered in. And that's what scares me the most about people like Newland. Uh, in a, I, I think you said she's actually going to be in a higher position at the State Department than she previously was. Oh, yeah, way higher. Yeah, Definitely. and people like Samantha Powers that are now going in there and Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken, all of these people have their eye on the prize. You know, I mean, they know that Russia is the prize. That's what Ukraine was all about. Newland said it herself on that phone call. Um, USAID, who, who Powers is now going to be heading, which is really like where regime change happens, that, that was who was funding the opposition in Ukraine, they openly said um, that Ukraine was a stepping stone to Putin. So this is, it's all very creepy. And 
um, very scary, you know, because we're talking about two nuclear armed states that Biden is essentially putting us on the path of war with. And it should be taken very seriously. And to think that Newland is saying the last three administrations weren't harsh enough on Russia. It's just like, how, where do we want to go with this, dude? Because even though Trump is painted as some Putin puppet, he really did a lot of crazy shit about Russia. He withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. He launched strikes directly against Syria. He demanded all the NATO members increase their military spending. And he authorized those weapons to Ukraine as well as imposed tons of sanctions against Russia, including for the annexation of Crimea. Yeah, I mean, Victoria Newland. we can't forget that she is the wife of Robert Kagan, who was one of the, frankly, one of the most scary neocons, I think, ever. Um, and his entire family is. And she shares the same mentality as the rest of the family, which is basically just a really hawkish, old-school Cold War mentality on Russia that we just need to punish Russia into submission. It's a just a game, geopolitical game of chicken, essentially. I mean, it's it it's wrapped in all this neat-sounding diplomatic language, but it's essentially just comes down to that. I mean, you heard Robert Kagan, her husband, laugh. He was mo- almost like mocking this mm-hmm. this experience he had talking to Obama that Obama was hesitant to get into some kind of nuclear confrontation with Russia. Um, so that I, I think that's a bad sign. If Victoria Newland has her thumb on the scales in terms of how mm-hmm. the Russia policy is going to go, and I think that it will, and I also think it was meant to send a signal to Russia. That's what I think was kind of disturbing about it. Like right. they didn't have to announce right. her position really even yet. It's almost like the anti-reset in a way. It's like, no, dude, we're yeah. bringing Newland back, motherfuckers. Yeah, and how Watch Biden's now talking about how he's going to review what to do about the poisoning of Navalny and like the bounties placed by Russia on American forces in Afghanistan and potential election interference. It's like two fake issues that were like bringing back um, at the beginning of Biden's administration is just a really bad sign to concoct these fake issues to now just try to punish Russia over. Um And then, like, according to the Moscow Times, some, like, neocon writer for the Moscow Times was talking about how Biden's whole Russia agenda will be exactly what we accuse Russia of doing. Like, just out in the open. He's like, we are going to, this is what Biden's going to do, support Russia's underground civil society, expose Russian official corruption through leaks, (laughs) and, like, discredit the Kremlin in the eyes of ordinary Russians. It's like, okay, great, great. Because that's exactly what Biden is alleging Putin does to us on this grand scale and then talking about punishing Russia for doing so. Yet you're just like openly pontificating about doing these things to Russia and that it's totally well and good because we're the good guys, right? It's just, it's just fucking insane. Okay, so when it comes to Africa, um, you know, the biggest thing that Biden did obviously was repeal the Muslim ban that affected 13 nations. I mean, in Africa, this affected a lot of countries. So that was a huge deal, I think, to people living there. However, when it comes to counterterrorism, quote unquote, you know, Trump dramatically increased drone strikes in Somalia and made them less transparent. In the first seven months of 2020, the U.S. conducted more airstrikes in Somalia than were carried out during both previous administrations. There was that alleged troop withdrawal, which was really just 
placing the troops that were in Somalia, which were only 500 to begin with, in like just surrounding countries like Djibouti and Kenya. So it was all smoke and mirrors. So basically what it comes down to is Biden has not said shit about what they're going to do with Africa. Um, I am only assuming that the drone strikes will continue at the same pace, if not increase under Biden and the same counterterrorism measures and the expansion of AFRICOM. When you look at the UN ambassador he appointed, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, she ran Obama's policy towards sub-Saharan Africa, and she oversaw the expansion of the military footprint in Niger. So it was like under her leadership that this kind of U.S. shadow war was born across the African continent in the wake of the war on terror. It it had started under Bush, but it was definitely expanded under Obama, specifically under the management of Linda Thomas-Grinfield. So she also comes from like the Albright line of thinking. She worked at some think tank that was started by Madeleine Albright. So that's a bad sign when it comes to Africa. And in fact, African leaders who are dealing with the U.S. military in their countries already just say they have no hopes whatsoever for a change in policy with Biden. When it comes to Latin America, this was another thing that I was assuming would be a built-in guarantee that we would renormalize relations with Cuba, right? Wrong, Robbie. Um, Everything that I've read so far shows that Biden is taking this very slowly. Yeah, he's going to allow Americans, I guess, to travel there. But like the sanctions, any of the other things that Obama did that were really great. Yeah, he didn't lift the blockade. But everything else was really, really great. Cuba was certainly happy with the way that things were going at the end of Obama's term. I was there working on breaking the set. That was my finale. They were very happy with it. They even had erected statues of him in certain areas because it was such a huge symbolic measure. Yes. Yeah, it was a huge symbolic measure. I saw one. Yeah, I saw one. That's very weird. You know, so I'm really disappointed to hear that they are taking their sweet ass time when it comes to Cuba because Cubans can't wait. You know, again, we're talking about a pandemic where they aren't getting food and medicine because of the sanctions that Trump implemented. And it's just really disappointing. And and they keep citing like Republican leader, like Marco Rubio and how all these other people don't want them to lift the sanctions and stuff. It's like, fucking it. cares, dude. You have political capital. Like how many times does this need to be said? Yeah. And also the fact that Pompeo put Cuba on the list of state sponsors of terrorism right before he left office, which is actually going to take a lot to remove, I guess. It's like, why? Just fucking remove it, just like you did the Houthis. So I think it's different when you have the state sponsor of terrorism versus like, this is a terrorist group like the Houthis. Apparently you're able to remove that. And this one is just a crazy designation because it's only three other countries that are allegedly state sponsors of terrorism, Iran, North Korea, and Syria. And it's like, you're again, like Cuba is exporting fucking doctors around the world to give free medical treatment during a global pandemic. And this is the shit that we're doing to them still. And Pompeo did this like, didn't he do this a few months before leaving Trump left office too? Yeah. Right before, right before. And then, um, you know, Venezuela briefly, Blinken immediately said, we recognize Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. This is a guy who doesn't have any legislative oh power God. at all in the country. He has no power. He's not in the National Assembly anymore. He's just a random fucking dude on the street. He's still the president, according to Joe Biden. And he said specifically to the guy who posted a lynch threat against a sitting president of another country, Marco Rubio, Blinken pointed to him and said, I'm very excited to work with you on Venezuela. 
So that's where we're headed with Venezuela. Nicaragua, will the sanctions be dropped? I don't know. Ecuador, Lenin Moreno, the um, IMF puppet who sold out Julian Assange, was just visiting Biden in the White House as an election is happening, as the socialist Correa um, associate is signaled to win. What does that mean? Does that mean that a coup is on the table to overthrow this coming election like we did in Bolivia? I don't know. It's very scary. So far, no policy shift on Latin America. And the Cuba thing is just a huge disappointment. Even Ben Rhodes, you know, it's like a lot of people think he was he's like a piece of shit, rightfully so. He's pretty neoliberal. But like, it doesn't even seem like Biden has anyone like that. Mm-hmm. Anyone even close to mm-hmm. having those kind of politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, him and Obama were really trying to get that Cuba stuff done um, towards the end of his term. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, one of the one of the only minuscule, tiny things that Obama did that was good out of all the horrible things uh, that he did during his presidency. Just to close it out, uh, I wanted to give people a heads up on some of the think tanks that are going to be basically influencing Biden and already have influenced the trajectory of his administration's foreign policy. Um, One of the big ones is called the Center for New American Security, CNAS. Um, They focus on China in a recent commercial of them themselves. Um, They uh, are definitely all about escalating tensions with Russia and China. Victoria Nuland was actually the CEO of this think tank for a few months and she mysteriously dropped down from her position and i don't really know what she was doing in between that and now um it was like almost like a whole year so it'd be interesting to find out why she had to leave her position of ceo so quickly um, so hastily um michelle flournoy co-founded uh cnas she's also part of csis which i'm going to discuss in a second also part of the council on foreign relations yeah, she, um, really quickly, she was on the shortlist for who Secretary became of Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. She yeah. was going to be picked for that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't even really matter because they co-founded West Exec Advisors, the shadowy uh, Pentagon advisory group that helps the Pentagon like sell their weapons to other entities yeah. like Israel and beyond. And so they work super closely together. Tony Blinken works directly with her. So he's directly connected to CNAS. And also really quickly, Avril Haines, who's a woman, first woman spy director, uh, head of the DNI, who oversaw and was instrumental in the killer drone architecture. She is also on the board of CNAS, you know, and she's also involved in Palantir. So it's just a really incestual, convoluted, like big web here of all these people. Well, they take money from Boeing and other mm-hmm. defense companies. It, it sort of was one of the first big examples of a bipartisan think tank in the sense that it was neocons with liberals from the Obama Mm -hmm. era joining together, foreign policy thinkers joining together. And by that, I mean people like Eric Edelman, who was a key Cheney national security advisor with people like Victoria Nuland and Michelle Flournoy and these other people from the Obama era. Kamala Harris also drew heavily from CNAS uh, for her presidential primary campaign for foreign policy talking points. This other think tank that seems to have spawned some of the people like Anthony Blinken called CSIS, Center for the Strategic and International Studies. It's been around 
for at least 20 years. Oddly, a, one strange coincidence is it was behind Operation Dark Winter uh, with mm-hmm. John Hopkins and the CDC in June of 2001, that t- fake uh, terrorism pandemic exercise that took place. Um, it receives funding from defense contractors, extremely hawkish think tank, oil companies and Gulf dictatorships like the UAE, also money from Saudi Aramco. And one third of Biden's Pentagon transition team alone lists as their most recent employment think tanks, organizations or companies that are either funded by the weapons industry or are directly part of this industry, which, you know, is not really that shocking, but is also just, you know, I, I think one of the more brazen things out of this is that West exec thing and Anthony Blinken and Michelle Flournoy like openly being involved in defense companies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, just like Lloyd Austin, like just a very brazen. Yeah, I mean, that's you know? brazen. And that's but we've seen that before. We've seen right. Lloyd Austin, someone who's from a defense company being appointed. But I feel like we've never seen someone who's like investing money in like defense companies and like doing this little umbrella company to help them make money off weapons also like it's just a sh- i've never seen that specifically maybe that's right been yeah before. right and well lloyd austin another interesting thing about him is that he's a partner at pine island capital it's a firm that owns smaller defense firms too it's like very obviously like a conflict of interest <laughs> you know it's just like so disgusting yeah. You mentioned CSIS. This is someone else who's in CSIS, his deputy secretary of defense, Kathleen Hicks. She was senior vice president at CSIS. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of crossover here. I mean, we were kind of zooming through this because I know you need to go. But yeah, there's the, Jake Sullivan is also uh, sits on the board for the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is another think tank that was specifically designed to fight or combat disinformation. So there's a lot of crossover here between all these different think tanks and and these people. But then there's some shadowy operators too, Abby, that, you know, we're mentioning Victoria Newland a lot, but what about the rest of her family and their think tank, the Institute for the Study of War? I mean, that's been another example of complete continuity between the Obama administration and then the Trump administration. We found out that General Jack Keane uh, from the Institute for the Study of War was advising Trump's Pentagon. You know, this was after Fred and Kim Kagan were directly hanging out and working in David Petraeus's office in Afghanistan while he was conducting that war. So I have zero doubt that this Kagan family think tank will be in a strong advisory role, probably a bigger role than they were in the Trump administration. Um, David Petraeus and Bill Kristol still currently are in these executive roles at the think tank. So that's, you know, also disturbing to think Bill Kristol might be calling shots at the Pentagon through this think tank somehow. But I mean, the Kagan family is already dangerous enough. So they were always trying to push the envelope with everything. You know, they wanted to send 30,000 troops back into Iraq to fight ISIS and things like that. They were always going hard with everything. Then there's all these other think tanks like, what's, what are the other ones? Like Hudson and the Claremont Institute. They're sort of going to continue on to this fake populist, right populist grift vehicle uh, where they push anti-China and fake battles against the ruling class, sort of like how Tucker Carlson does. But a lot of them are associated with Project for the New American Century people or people associated with it. Um, there's They use sort of fronts like Hudson uses Rising, uh, the Realignment podcast. Hudson, a lot of people in Hudson constantly in the Epoch Times, they seem to be really plugged into that somehow. And then the Claremont Institute, uh, they 
have as front little operations uh, a little outlet called American Greatness. So there's these, you know, these these sort of new a new breed of think tanks that has sort of gotten onto the Trumpism rhetorical framework, and they're also you know funded by defense companies, funded by these foundations, these shady foundations, corporations. In Hudson's case, they're found, funded by pharmaceutical companies, and they put out a lot of stuff warning people against fentanyl flooding our streets from China. They don't talk so much about the Sackler family or OxyContin, which is uh, you know, pretty obvious why they don't. And then we also have the really far-right neocon out in the open you know, think tanks that were always pushing for Iranian regime change, pushing for uh, you know, more Islamophobia, more crackdowns against Muslims. Um, the Foundation for Defense for, of Democracies and the Center for Security Policy. Um, Center for Security Policy is Frank Gaffney's think tank. Um, and, you know, we also have the American Enterprise Institute Heritage Foundation, which will also be putting stuff out. But I think more of all these think tanks I just listed, Abby, I think the most influential ones we're going to see in this administration are going to be things like the Atlantic Council, which already has this digital forensics lab which basically means like combating disinformation, sort of like Bellingcat or Alliance for Securing Democracy. Think tanks like Brookings, these sort of NATO-focused think tanks, Abby, I think are going to have um, a pretty big influence in Biden's administration, especially in the State Department. ISW, Institute for Study of War, is going to have an influence at the Pentagon. And um, you know, I think CNAS is going to have an influence overall uh, across the board. But I'm Especially, the, I think the unique threat here, Abby, is that there are there is going to be some kind of push to combat disinformation from the from the executive branch, and there's going to be some kind of campaign. So this disinformation combating campaign, which is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be sort of a um, a symbiosis between this think tank circuit, the sort of Bellingcat sphere, and now we're mov- moving into this new world where. QAnon has become such a huge news story. It's just churning and churning. It's becoming, you know, this thing to just make it seem like every conspiracy theory is bad and dangerous. Um, I think we're going to see some kind of expression of that from the Biden administration, whether it's going to be Silicon Valley companies sort of more working together with the state in more of a PR fashion. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to play out. But one thing I just want to tell people is, this fight against big tech, um, the idea of fighting big tech, I mean, from the conservative side, from the GOP side, it's mostly this like weird rope-a-dope, you know, show, circus act. It's not legitimate. It does seem like almost the liberals in this equation, the neoliberals are more playing like the bad cop, like they're the ones openly encouraging censorship louder than the conservatives. And the conservatives are playing like the good cop where they're acting like they're going to be the ones to fight big tech. And they're like our friends or the friends of civil liberties, but they're actually really all being lobbied by the same Silicon Valley companies. They, you know, they're working towards the same goals. Like they want to repeal this section, you know, the section of the, the law that makes these companies liable for content that they host. So that would mean that the internet would get way more locked down if the conservatives actually got their agenda through. So it is a dangerous era we're moving into. We already saw the precedent of Twitter basically blocking any mentions of the Hunter laptop, even posting pictures of Hunter with a mm-hmm. crack pipe in his mouth would get flagged like by an algorithm. That's a really bad precedent we're moving into. Um, 
And I think it's going to get worse moving forward. I think this is, this is to me is the real issue of censorship. It's not uh, cancel culture. You know, there's tons of articles right now about the, the Mandalorian actress, you know, getting quote unquote canceled, you know, as if Disney gives a shit about your politics. She said shit like comparing a uh, MAGA people to like Jews in the Holocaust on Instagram. I mean, mm-hmm. she got fucking fired for saying some stupid shit, you know, just like Roseanne mm-hmm. did on social media. So d- just just be aware that there are conservative grifters and populist right, you know, s- facing think tanks that are really just the same as all these other D- DC think tanks. They just have clever rhetoric to make it seem like they're fighting against big tech. And one thing I've just learned is that the Hudson Institute specifically, you know, even though it's acting like it's anti-Biden, it actually has a thing called, um, I think it's called Project, it's not called Project Lincoln or the Lincoln Project, but it's called something Lincoln. And it is now acting like it's the new think tank in DC to fight against Silicon Valley. And it has all these people from the Hudson Institute in it. So Ugh. that should signal to you that this that there are clever people who are no understand this populist rhetoric who are already jumping into this void, you know, to act like they're fighting big tech. It's even more of a compromised situation than like the EFF. You know, the EFF maybe started legitimate but took donations over time from Google and all these places and became compromised. This is more just straight up compromised out of the gates in order to take advantage of this sort of populist anger at Silicon Valley. So Right. And a lot of these populist so called populist right people like um, you know, Mike Cernovich. I don't even know if Mike Cernovich should even call himself populist anymore. I don't even know what his politics are. He blocked me so long ago. But a lot of people like that, that once upon a time people thought that we can unite with these people to fight quote unquote the establishment, whatever that means. But a lot of these people are probably funded by the same nefarious right-leaning people that fund these think tanks that you're talking about you know these people are propped up by like right-wing billionaire libertarians and stuff so yeah or just like oligarchs and foundations yeah right right you don't see that that same type of funding apparatus on the left because it doesn't exist no i mean when it comes to the actual real left i mean there are people who want to conflate neoliberalism and well i don't do that yeah Yeah, no no, i I don't i don't do that shit and it's really dumb that people do and it's really it really convolutes and muddies the argument that aside though this outlet uh that you might have seen floating around on social media it's not huge but it's quite viral it's called american greatness they just put out a, a story um i don't know today saying what makes Gina Carano, she's the actress from Mandalorian who got fired, what makes Gina Carano's story so galling is how it yet again invinces an ever-widening chasm between ruling class elites and the dissident deplorables over whom oh my they God. deign to rule. Now, what's interesting about this American Greatness outlet, Abby, is you may read that thinking, oh, that sounds like just a gateway pundit or Breitbart-style headline. But what's interesting about this outlet is it's actually an outlet front organization for the Claremont Institute. Now, the Claremont Institute is very similar to the Hudson Institute. It's much smaller. It doesn't write a lot of papers. But what it does do is it has a lot of very influential neocons involved in it, specifically a PNAC member named William Bennett, who was Ronald Reagan's former drug czar. Now, I just find it very bizarre that Ronald Reagan's former drug czar 
You know, it makes sense how someone like Steve Bannon can get away with talking about globalists and elites. Even though he was a Goldman <laughs> Sachs guy and he made a lot of money, he still doesn't have the baggage. But for something like this, where it's like Ronald Reagan's drug czar's think tank's outlet is talking about ruling class elites. I mean, it's just unbelievable <laughs> how anybody could fucking swallow this horse shit. I mean, it's, it's Well, that's what was gross. so funny about like Trump brought back all of the most evil like Reagan era criminals you know and somehow they yeah. all well they're populist bought it hook line and sinker that they were like fighting some sort of deep state apparatus it's like it doesn't reagan embody the deep state like all the 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 dirty wars yeah. and but the abby, he's populist death squads he's populist abby he was a nationalist super weird dude i mean that's what's fascinating is people don't remember that yeah there was an era of the united states where pre that sort of international obligations post cold war mentality the american foreign policy orientation was more america first unilateral we don't give a fuck where we control the world you know that was the that's the reagan era that but that's mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. neoconservatism in a different packaging right. i mean right it's still about expanding the empire underneath that it's just under the guise of nationalism and why and patriotism for you know it's got the evil empire myth making kind of yeah right right and then biden arose out of the ashes of like reaganism and trying to find that third way like the new democrats the clinton era he did um where they were trying to appeal toward like the reagan base and then we just kept going off the deep end from there the only thing that Biden, i mean one of the only good things i was reading that biden actually did uh, out of that era is when George H.W. Bush tried to launch um, the invasion of Panama. He like voted against it, and really? it, he would, not not super strongly, but he opposed it. So he's oh, gone sort of back and forth on right. certain things over time. But he got more seemingly like more conservative during the end of the Clinton era and the Bush era, and then like tried to like go, pull away again from like mm-hmm. acting like he was war hungry. Who yeah. actually fucking knows what his real beliefs are? I mean, he's to me, he's virtually unreadable. He's just as much of a wild card in a weird way as Trump is. Like, what does he actually believe? Well, he's so malleable now. You know, that's yeah. the dangerous part is that it doesn't even matter what he believed 40 years ago. It's like, it doesn't. I doubt he remembers no. that. And he seems you know, like... I feel, a, I feel like... Uh-huh. He, he seems like a completely different person if you watch video from right. him. I mean, it's right. I, don't, I don't know if it's just cognitive decline, but he he does seem like a totally different person. Well, it almost seems like he just kind of repeats what the last person told. And that was kind of like Trump, too. It is, you know, except like, Trump it, makes it, just, it sound convincing. Trump right, makes it sound right. pretty and, and yeah. interesting. Or Where Biden is almost like going over it in his mind, being like, oh, no, no, no. Because every time during the campaign, he would be like, ah, that doesn't sound right. Like he would just be correcting himself real time. And it's like, dude, this does not bode well as like a presidential candidate. of <laughs> you like a second guessing everything that you say and like stammering over your thoughts? And no, I get that he has a stutter. I'm not talking about that. Um, but what were you going to say about Hunter Biden art? Oh, you're ready for let's that? Sh- let's wrap this shit up, dude. Yeah. But it was just announced recently, actually, that Hunter Biden. Oh, my God. What? I'm looking at it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Um, so Hunter Biden, uh, right after uh, the election of his father, um, he signed with a uh, major New York gallery and will have his first solo art show next year sometime in 20 well actually middle of 2021 oh um it's the georges burgess gallery 
has inked a deal with the president's son. And um, now I guess this is the same art gallery that also did a showing of Sylvester Stallone's art. So if that says anything, that says that they are a gallery that likes to be, you know, get publicity for doing just like celebrities' vanity art projects, mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. I'm sure f- for Hunter's on Hunter's side, he probably is not he's probably not dumb he probably understands what that is you know it's not like the most prestigious gallery spot but here abby let me just uh, give you a little trip down hunter biden's um art career um now what's really funny is the thing that stood out to me the most out of the entire article now i want you to just scroll down a little bit um and look at some of the pictures and wait mm-hmm. till you see a picture where where hunter biden is actually making the art and tell me what you see uh where his face is in the frame there's one of him using a little brush um <laughs> now scroll down past that and tell me what you see on the next uh picture him blowing a little straw yeah so i was uh, i was a little fascinated by that that one of his main art technique or processes involves him using a metal straw to blow ink around a piece of paper <laughs> now i don't know if this is something that he was inspired by from the amount of cocaine that he had yeah. done uh, right. he, we know that he he himself has said that he was addicted to crack for eight years. He probably does have a little bit of an oral fixation in general. but um, And actually during this interview, the interviewer remarks several times that he's vaping, chain vaping during, mm-hmm. the, during the interview. But um, he says uh, when he blows to the metal straw to disperse the ink, you have to be really focused in order to be alter in order to be able to alter it to your own imagination. Um, it just seems I it just seems kind of like drug art. I mean, I don't know if the <laughs> Of course it is. <laughs> like I'm sure he's I mean it's definitely like nuts. a it's of the psychedelic variety. Um, right. He uh he seems to actually spend a lot of money on the materials for his art, which is not surprising. Now uh the the articles opens up with um that he's dressed in Oxford boots, jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt. Hunter Biden ushered a reporter down a stone walkway into a pool house turned art studio on the Hollywood Hills. It was filled with colorful works of decorative abstraction, psychedelic florals, and ethereal patterns that look like nature viewed through a microscope, leaning toward the surreal. There were nearly 100 of them, all by his own hand. Some were signed R.H. Biden for Robert Hunter Biden, the 50-year-old son of the vice president. What do you see, he asked, shifting bottles of ink and a bamboo workbrush. He said it can take 14 layers of alcohol ink for the material to adhere to the nearly indestructible Japanese yupo paper he uses as his canvases. He blows the ink with a metal straw. It is fast drying and has a natural progression, and you have to be really focused in order to be able to alter alter to your own imagination, he said. Any reaction to that, Abby? Uh, yeah, well, very, very drug oriented, very drug oriented. My reaction is that the fact that he's leasing a house with a full blown like art studio (laughs) adjacent to it for $12,000 a month in the Hollywood Hills is just so over the top. Look, my initial reaction, it's a hell of a lot better than George W. Bush's paintings. I'll give him that. True. Right. I, I am a fan of psychedelic art. But it is like also kind of basic. I'm not impressed at all. And it's just like kind of annoying that he just is going to now segue seamlessly into being like a famous artist with installations in New York City. That's what's disgusting about the art scene in general. It's just like it just seems like half of it 
at the very least are just well-connected famous people who just decide to dabble in something. And it just seems like, you know, he's just like, all right, I'm sober. So yeah. And is he really even sober? I mean, like, right. (laughs) I mean, maybe he is, but I'm sure he's getting stoned. (laughs) It just seems like stoner rich guy art. Right. He's blowing ink on a, around a little piece of paper, probably the paper, the sheets of paper are probably like 50 bucks each. Like, I don't know how fucking expensive this paper is, but it's like, I mean, it's kind of like that, um, what is that thing they, they used to, like, I think they used to make, sell it as, like, a kid's toy where you put a piece of paper on that little thing and then it spins and then you, like, drop right. ink and paint it on it. Right, it does look like that. Yeah, it does, it's like, like, at the fair and shit. He's that doing did. that, but yeah, he's doing yeah, yeah. it using a straw to do it, which is cute, right. I guess. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm highly doubt he invented this technique. Um, I wonder if he huffs all the paint afterward. Alcohol paint. What? The, what? I've never heard. Alcohol-based ink. Apparently. I mean, it just sounds like to me. It just sounds like expensive shit that he's buying. Yeah, at, like, yeah, Blick. yeah. He's right, going to like the right. top shelf Blick. <laughs> like shit. Yeah. He's buying like the most expensive. <laughs> I mean, he just probably has. You know, he. I mean, think of how much money he got got from Ukraine. He probably spent all that yeah, on oh this Yupo paper and and alcohol-based yeah. ink. He's buying. Um, must be fun, dude. Must be fun. Yeah. And uh, but it, then this is interesting. He says his fingers and forearms were paint stained, blacks and reds deep under his nails, flecks on his jeans and boots. Something his wife Melissa Cohen, whom he married in May after a week long courtship, can't stand. Ooh. I always get my huh. pants dirty. He said, "I don't even notice it, but Melissa hates it." So he's the type of guy that marries someone after a week long courtship, Ooh, which is pretty that's... fucking weird. That's a super fucking big red flag, dude. Damn. Yeah. He, he might want to hold on to that fucking cash to get a prenup, definitely. Jesus fucking Christ, what a moron. At his studio, Mr. Biden talked about his work while puffing an e-cigarette and standing and staring into the distance. While smoking crack out of the same metal <laughs> yeah. straw that he then uses to blow the ethereal <laughs> psychedelic abstract works. Yeah. That is so, oh God. I mean, I don't, hate the sad thing is i don't hate hunter biden because like all the all the press about him kind of backfired where i kind of like don't hate the guy his life looked pretty cool yeah i mean Um, at least he's not out there on twitter every day acting like a stupid bitch i mean he's at least i mean it wasn't his fault that all those like pictures of his penis stacked with (laughs) m&ms and fucking all these different women with (laughs) selfies from his iphone leaked out somebody leaked somebody stole that shit i mean Um, yeah, it, it. But yeah, this is just such a rich kid. It's just such rich shit. Oh, but it's just so gross. You know, you're gonna love this though. Oh um, no! So this is to me. I wanted to end it on the two best parts. I thought were that were from here. Um, so Mrs. Cohen, who is his new wife, who was pregnant with the couple's first child, is a South African-born filmmaker in her early 30s who lived in Israel for several years. Yikes. The day after their first date, Mr. Biden tattooed the Hebrew word shalom for peace on his left bicep, giving the couple matching tattoos. It is very abstract, sometimes very dark, Mrs. Cohen said of her husband's art. It draws a lot from nature. So he got a, the word shalom in Hebrew tattooed on his bicep. After one date. Yeah, after... Apparently one day, yeah. Uh, I don't know what a week-long courtship meant. And the weirdest part from the article, and I guess I'll just end it here on this creepy note, is that he said, recently he has been writing letters to his deceased brother, Bo, who succumbed to brain cancer in 2015, a loss that sent Mr. Biden off on a four-year nightmare. Now, that's sort of interesting because we know already that Hunter ended up marrying and hooking up with Bo's ex-wife mm-hmm. i mean her mm-hmm. his widow 
So what kind of letters was he writing to Bo? Probably all part of the AA trajectory where you go and uh, you know, make amends. That's make amends yeah. with everyone you've wronged. And so he's writing to his brother saying, I'm sorry that I started screwing your wife. What if it's like um, not sorry letters? What if it's like you deserved it? <laughs> you couldn't get it up in the bedroom and your wife loved it. Like what if it's just like terribly mean spirited? Like, like I gave you brain really cancer. Surreal, he lives here. I stole, I stole the cancer. I smuggled the cancer tr- virus out of the Pentagon. <laughs> Dad doesn't know. Oh my God, dude. <laughs> I weaponized cancer, yeah. the same cancer we gave to Hugo yeah, Chavez. Yeah, Hugo Chavez, shot dude. shot it into your skull. <laughs> I'm going to go try to find his house, bro. I can't believe he lives here. What the hell? He said, you know, he so says weird. he can see a red barn that used to be used as some other famous painter's art studio, and he lives right off of Mulholland Drive. Okay, great. Good. Yeah. Two very, very good tidbits of information that I need to find Hunter Biden's house. And I also, just a little tidbit about him recently. I mean, he is a pretty big fuck up. As much money as he seems to be raking in, he also just like got proven to be someone's father in a paternity test like last year. I don't even know how this didn't come out again in a story actually. But he had like a, he just knocked somebody up randomly and and she uh, got him, she tried to get him for child support. And I guess he tried to, he tried to get out of it and I don't know what the deal was. And I mean, he can fucking afford child support if it's his kid, dude. I'm looking forward to his paintings being next to George W. Bush's paintings in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. So very excited about (laughs) Hunter Biden's new career. It's going to be great to see him making hundreds of millions of dollars off of this shitty art (laughs) to just dumb liberals who are obsessed with Joe Biden because his cabinet's the most diverse cabinet we've ever had. Yeah, it, it truly is, and that's and that all that matters. that means a lot. That means a lot. That's all that matters, so, the optics, uh, the diversity, even though it's really not that diverse. I mean, it's, um, yeah. We're in for a wild ride, baby. It's going to yes, be a are. doozy. <laughs> Strap up. It's going to be a goddamn doozy. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed. We'll definitely get more into the think tanks and personnel, uh, especially as they get confirmed um, on future episodes. There's just so much to say, Robbie, all the time, so much going on, but we'll definitely keep you in the loop as we know more. So thank you so much for listening to Media Roots Radio. Check out our exclusive podcast, uh, one per month that we're doing for Patreon only, patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Robbie is the seventh installment, if I'm not mistaken, of the Freemasonic, sixth installment coming out this month. Uh, coming out this month, yeah, a sixth installment of the Masonic history of the United States. Uh, the previous five installments are available to our Patreon subscribers. Part one is unlocked, and you can check that out um, if you just want to get, uh, you know, get a little bit of a deep dive before you decide to commit to uh, the whole thing. But it's 25 hours long now. It's going to continue. It's probably going to be eight parts, and we're going to try to put them out monthly. We may take a month break um, again at some point, but they're they're going to come out, and um, yeah, really excited to show show all my research to you guys. We will have an exclusive uh, podcast every single month for, sure. for our patron family. So thank you so much for your support. Your support keeps this show going, keeps us motivated to do everything that we do. Uh, and we love you guys and we really appreciate you and join up for what is it five dollars to join our discord channel i wanted to actually start a, a q a session there to just find out what people want us to 
talk about and if people have any questions for us that we can address in a, a future patron exclusive episode. So let's uh, let's get that going. And thanks again, guys. Appreciate you. Thanks, everybody. Take care. And remember to subscribe to our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. 